All right, so welcome to this next episode, this next installment of the Lenten look at uh, or journey through Dante's Divine Comedy um, on the Curious Catholic Podcast. And so again, my name is Matt Shaminsky, and I'm joined by Paul Camacho. And the last time we were together, we um, we, we met Virgil. We we journeyed downward into the beginnings of the region of hell. We passed through the foreboding gates uh, warning us to abandon all hope. So having shed that hope, we are now together again uh, to look at, um, you know, more of our descent into, into Dante's Inferno and all that it can help us realize about even ourselves in the present day and how this text is uh, beneficial uh, in, in ways that go beyond just the reading of this great, great poem. So um, Paul. That's right. It's great to no. It's great to be talking with you again, even if we're um, talking about how (laughs) I was reminded actually, as um, in in the spirit of this conversation, that um, Dante is an author who, probably unlike any other, has historically been studied um, in groups in conversations, and one of the reasons for this is that um, his the the poetry and the images and the themes are so rich that it it like dante contains within himself this world that is um polyphonous that has many voices but it takes actually many readers and and in conversation to bring out the depths of what he um is giving us so it's it's great to be talking with you about this again matt absolutely yeah and as we were just kind of talking uh before before hitting record it's just you know, I keep saying, you know, I had never noticed that before. I never noticed that before. And um, it's nice to do that, that, that spirit to engage in that uh, process of discovery with someone else. So to your point, it's, it's great to continue talking about this and uh, uh, hopefully listeners are, are, are too feeling part of the process of discovery. Um, and so, you know, I just w- did want to revisit some themes from our previous episode. I was, um, you know, struck uh, in a certain way, um, you know, something else I'm doing presently is is consi- taking a consideration of the doctrine of creation, and um, and so I was reading something the other day about Genesis one, uh, you know, the opening chapter, that creation narrative, and how it seemed uh, in this particular reading similar to Dante's first Inferno uh, or first Canto of the Inferno, where you have this sort of disorientation, um, you have this 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 urge, you know, this desire to reach sure footing right firm land mm-hmm. um or, or but first comes this idea of light right at least first seeing and then desiring sure footing and then um having a trajectory or, or a direction and dante sees the mountain right mm-hmm. um but he can't ascend it right that he's he's blocked by the three beasts of um whatever you know whatever they represent in actuality the spirit of worldliness and lust and and desire of domination and then it's really with with the companion um so the first man being accompanied by the first woman where you know in, in genesis there's this sense of at least somewhat a sense of completion or at least companionship and a mutual um you know uh project or enterprise and so we see that as well with Dante. He gets he gets so much more encouraged and confident with Virgil, for lots of reasons. Mm-hmm. But um, so I, th- I thought that was interesting, right? That, that that sort of parallelism that was there, and um, you know, I thought I'd mention it here at the outset. Um, again, sort of speaking to the many layeredness that, that, of, of Dante and how he he's so shaped by 
that Catholic imagination we were mentioning the last time around that, um, you know, that, that's, that struck me as a parallelism. Yeah, that's really, it's a good example of how many ways there are to read Dante and how um, there can certainly be wrong ways to read Dante, but that he, again, he invites these um, enriching sort of parallel readings um, or intertwining readings. We, we, we didn't even mention it, but um, Dante, for example, um, casts himself in the first person. And he says in another one of his works that the two models for this are Augustine in his Confessions and Boethius um, in his Constellation of Philosophy, both texts that he would have had access to. So in here he is, he's making himself um, a hero like Virgil's Aeneid. He's calling on images from the from Genesis 1. Um, he's, he's doing this rhetorical strategy where he puts himself in the first person Others have pointed out um, that he's journeying in and through the woods, and who would do this except knights who would go on their quests, right? And they would always, you know, searching for the Holy Grail. Um, what do you do? You go into a dark wood and you emerge uh, victorious. You come back out. So, a kind of contemporary for him, um, um, chivalric and um, um, knightly sort of code that he's drawing on as well here. So he, he's just doing so much um, uh, that. Um, it's it's really exciting to kind of bounce and intertwine these um, um, ideas off of one another, and I don't think we lose anything thereby, or it's not a confusion; it's a kind of enrichment. So, absolutely, we're going to see that, and that might lead us right into actually to Canto Five, because one of the things, as we mentioned last time, is that Dante mixes together his um, Judeo-Christian sources with. Um, classical references and also with his own imagination. And Canto V is the first time we actually make it to one, um, and, and in fact, the first of Dante's sort of famous circles of hell. Now, it's really, um, we're going to talk when we get to the final Canto, the Inferno, about the, again, about the geography that's shaped and caused it, um, by Satan, as it'll turn out. But it's worth noting that these circles for Dante, there are nine of them, um, but in the, the way that the Inferno is divided up is you get to the first seven um, circles um, in the first half of the Inferno, and those circles are in order, um, right, lust, gluttony, avarice, um, greed, but also prodigality or sort of um, giving away of your um, – or spending your goods, um, think of the prodigal son there, um, anger – heresy and violence and then what we have is from the the latter part down is all for those who um are treacherous in some way and so dante um arranges the the poem in such a way that we spend fully half the time in hell with those who are treacherous to one another which says something about his view of human nature um but it also says something about um the fact that here on the outer circle the outermost circle so you can imagine hell like a um like a funnel or a cone kind of going downward so each concentric circle um narrows down so it's tighter and tighter until we get to the very center and here on the first circle, I think the idea is, at least in part, it's wider here because there are more people who occupy this level, or at least there's more um, real estate, let's say. But also, it's higher up, and therefore, um, the sin is not as rooted, so to speak, in the will and mind of the person who is committing the sin. So this first circle, which is the circle of lust, Dante is suggesting is, so to speak, the least 
bad sin. <laughs> You're still in they're still in hell. Um there's still a kind of hardening of the of the self against God. But the but the sin itself of lust is um it bears the least, if we can put it this way, on the kind of whole person um identifying and willing and choosing that sin, which is which is um fascinating. Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, the whole geography is fascinating in itself. So would definitely recommend listeners to try to look up an image. And um, the one that we're looking at is from the, uh, you know, it's got the, as editors and translators and um, the Hollanders, Robert and Jean Hollander, and the visuals in, in this edition are really actually some of the best I've seen in, in sort of visualizing uh, the, the literal geography of, of, of hell. Um yeah, so we're, with, with the circle of lust, we, we move on into the fifth canto, and um, this has to stand out as maybe one of the more well-known or often remembered ones, If I mean, mm-hmm. I would imagine, right? Um, right. And it, it is interesting, and it does make sense, right? This is, you know, we're dealing with lust, we're dealing with a passion that can really, and, and how many people speak about this throughout, you know, the, the history's literature and songs and movies, just how one can totally be overtaken by this passion uh, and reason gets clouded. And, and we, we see here how the, you know, the experience of, of a person gets, you know, externalized, right? In Dante's mm-hmm. envisioning of what what it's like now for those damned and um, for, you know, this, their most characteristic of, of sins and failings. Um, right. And as ever, he is, um, he looks to Virgil to describe um, what it is that he's seeing. And he also is um, witnessing and giving voice to what we talked about in the first episode of this idea of contrapassa, where the mm-hmm. suffering fits the crime and also sort of illustrates it, especially here in hell. So, um, at line 20, not, um, 28, he says, um, I reached a place mute of all light, which bellows as the sea in tempest tossed by conflicting winds. By the way, that's a really interesting play on words. It's mute of light, right? Mute is a word we'd usually use for sound, so totally dark. But the sound itself is bellowing like a sea. So we're it's a roaring tempest, a, a roaring um, storm. And then he says, the hellish squall which never rests sweeps spirits in its headlong rush, tormenting, whirls, and strikes them. Caught in that path of violence, they shriek, weep, and lament. Then how they curse the power of God. And this is, this is very important. He says, I understood that to such torment, the carnal sinners are condemned, they who make reason subject to desire. And so the sin here, right, is um, not... Um, uh, the partaking in or not sex itself, of course, or other pleasures, but rather the inversion of the order of the self so that um, um, our reason should be, which is most distinctively what makes us human, right, should be in control of our passions. But here, there's a willing subjugation or lowering of the reason beneath desire, right? And so the the sin here, again, Dante is very careful with his language here in describing the sin. It's not about the pleasure. It's not about the body. It's not about sex. It's actually about an inversion of the self that makes a kind of parody of the human person. Um, and we there's a kind of um, turning inside out, right? And so we allow ourselves to be pushed along by whatever it is that we attach ourselves to. And so the punishment here is that these souls are being buffeted and and um, 
uh, blown along, right? Um, he says, as in cold weather the wings of starlings bear them up in wide, dense flocks, so does that blast propel the wicked spirits. Here and there, down and up it drives them. Never are they comforted by hope of rest or even lesser punishment. Um, as, as always, um, Dante here is, just as we saw with the neutrals, he's sort of laying bare or um, the geography of the place, the suffering of the penance. Um, they're not penance. Um, that's that's going to be on purgatory. The suffering <laughs> of the sinners, um, the sort of resolute sinners is it's, – it's sort of laying bare the reality of lust, that lust is kind of like giving ourselves over to be led by something – um, hither, thither, to be buffeted by it and to not be in control, to, to sacrifice, to give up control, in fact. Mm -hmm. right. um, whereas, of course, in in their lives, these sinners um, would have sort of delighted in giving themselves up. Here, it's seen as a kind of loss of the self. It's interesting how at, at this early stage, at least in the journey through hell, Dante has, th there's a bit of perplexity on his part because uh, I think he sympathizes so much with them. It seems at least um, he seems to be not quite sure, like how how bad this is of what they've done, at least. I mean, a, a little sense that from, you know, when I was reading it again here and, you know, especially as we get further and further along, I think repeatedly a, a refrain from Virgil is going to be that I, I had to show you this. You have to see it. I think what Virgil's doing for Dante, Dante's doing for us. Right. You, right. You, you're getting to see what the sin looks like. Um, and as you're saying, right, the sin here isn't enjoying bodily goods or enjoyments that are that are good and holy and and true and and all of that and beautiful. It's is that inversion of the reason and right the giving oneself over and, and maybe that you know it gets overly I don't know if it's overly scholastic but seemingly overly technical right to talk about you know reason and will and all of that but you know as you're saying right you give yourself over to it and in a, in a way you, you willingly. Uh, abandon yourself to the passion, You're sort of right. handing yourself over, and therefore lose yourself. Um, yeah, which seems exactly. To be, and, and so, as it is, right, these souls can't control where they go. They, right. They've 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 given themselves over to this, and and they've they, they've abandoned themselves to this passion, and now for all of eternity, that's that's what they get. Right. So we see here um, a number of so it it's again he describes here's this. Um, sort of light touch here where he describes the souls as if they're birds um, multiple times as starlings and as doves um, moving through the air. And that shows, I think, what you were just saying, Matt, that he has, he feels a kind of sympathy and pity um, for these figures. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a minute. But um, so there's, there's just flocks and flocks of these souls that are being buffeted around. And he sees out of them sort of famous exemplars from um, scripture from um, um, his own um, uh, Roman classical sources um, and contemporary, more contemporary figures as well. So he sees, for example, um, Cleopatra and he sees um, Helen of Troy and he sees Dido, right? These kind of classical right. um, figures. But he also sees in, in kind of elliptical ways there are mentions of um you know queens from um the old testament for example who are known where the story goes or they had the reputation of being lecherous in some way so he sees these figures that he recognizes and then he does something really fascinating 
and he spends roughly half of the canto focus on two paired or intertwined souls that were um, relative contemporaries whose story was well known um, to everyone who lived in Italy at the time. And they're, they're famously they're, they're this pair of lovers whose names were um, Paolo and Francesca. There's so much that we can say about this and so much has been said about the um, story of Paolo and Francesca. Um, but the, the first thing to notice is that um, when Dante comes close to them, his immediate reaction is the same that we as readers often have in reading the story of Paolo and Francesca. He says um, that he feels um, a kind of a kind of pity for them, and he, and in fact, at the end of the story that they tell him, he's weeping and he um, faints uh, because it's so um, it's such a heart rending story. This story of Paolo and Francesca, and to, to summarize it very briefly, um, Francesca is. Um, married she's married to a man who was um both ugly and cruel <laughs> from what we could tell from the sources um and uh she is um she starts spending time with um paolo who's not her husband and what they do is they read a book together a book about um lancelot and how lancelot falls in love um uh, famously and commits adultery with arthur's um wife lancelot of the um knight of the round table and as they read in pleasure uh together enjoying the the poetry of this story their hands touch their eyes meet and then they're kind of overcome by passion and um, then we get a kind of um, dot 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 in the story. We don't know exactly what happens, but they it's we the presumably yada, yada, yada from uh, uh, we'll they've given like they've given themselves over to this <laughs> to this feeling. And um, and what happens? Except that the husband bursts in, finds them in an adulterous embrace, and kills both of them uh, out of anger and jealousy. Now um, the husband is is located down much lower in hell in the in the in the circle for the murders, but um, Francesca and Paolo. Um, because they died in the midst of this sin and they they um, they trembled on the edge of it, but then they sort of gave over to it, they're here for eternity and sort of intertwined with one another in the circle of lust. And they never leave each other's side just like they wanted in life. And yet um, they're damned. They're damned together, um, but they're damned. Right. And it's from you know you mentioned the the examples from antiquity and from more contemporary sources you know tristan and isolde or you know we, we hear see uh as you said helen and dido and cleopatra and it's interesting even if you go back there and then obviously to accentuate it to a much greater degree with paolo and francesca um there's this idea that that love was central here right mm -hmm. this wasn't uh, you know not motivated by love we i mean it says with um Right. And see the great Achilles who battled at the last with love. Um, we hear about someone who slew herself for love. Dido, mm -hmm. you know, we know uh, tragically uh, kills herself uh, in, in lamenting the, the departure of Aeneas um, in the Aeneid, um, which obviously uh, Virgil <laughs> has his hand in writing. Um, and then it, it's interesting as, as Francesca is talking with Dante, right? And they, they keep returning to the idea that love brought us to one death, she says. Um, 
So it's really, it's this thing that, as you mentioned last time around, right? For Dante, we are lovers. And the question is, what are you going to love? How are you going to love it? To what degree? To the exclusion of what else or the diminishment of what else? And so here we see that just this very particular and noble kind of love just gets misshapen or, or engaged in poorly. Um, but it's so understandable, which is why you said earlier, it's it's so so high in the in the cone uh, of Dante's <laughs> hell, um, but it is, and I think a lot of readers with Dante sort of, you know, have a great sympathy uh, right. for for these for these two, and um, and uh, there's a great understanding I think on the part of the reader. But as Virgil's right. doing, right, you have to see it. Right, this is still not good at the end of the day. Right. Well, there's there's a couple of really interesting things that are going on here. Um, I think we're meant to be, like Dante, we're meant to find this troubling and we're meant to find these characters sympathetic. Um, the journey through hell is a journey in which we have to learn not to have sympathy for the damned. And we, we could say that in an external way, um, but we could also make that um, personal and internal it's um what what the inferno is meant to teach dante it has a pedagogical value it's supposed to teach him and it's supposed to teach us um what's it supposed to teach us to not have sympathy for the hellish tendencies in ourself right. Right. <laughs> um we will we'll, we'll see worse sinners in mount purgatory who were supposed to have sympathy for precisely because they have repented of that sin they've turned themselves against it and so um, here early on in the Inferno, it's almost like Dante is presenting to us, the readers, and to himself as a character, a kind of test. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself sympathizing with these characters in hell? Um, yes? Okay, well, this is why you need to journey with me through the rest of hell, right. right? And when you go back and you read it again, you start to notice certain things that are really important in this relationship between Francesca and Paolo that don't come across the first time around. For example... Francesca over and over again says, love made me do it. In fact, there are these three stanzas that just begin with the word love. I'll, I'll, I'll just quickly read them. This is uh, line 100. Love, quick to kindle in the gentle heart, seized this man with a fair form taken from me. Right? So she says, here's another Genesis source, right? Just like in Genesis 3, it says, it wasn't me. It was this man who was seized by love. Right? And then the next line, love which absolves no one beloved from loving, sees me so strongly with his charm that, as you see, it has not left me yet. Here she's saying, seems to be saying, it's impossible to resist the power of love. It sees me so strong, I had to do what it said, mm -hmm. right? And then finally, she says, love brought us to one death, right? We wanted to be together, and now we're together here. But notice that the word, there's no I here. It's all it's all externalizing mm. the cause of her own sin. There's no sense of responsibility for it. It's almost like something happened uh, to her rather than something that she chose. Um, but there's another even uh, sort of um, psychological um, uh sort of event or non-event going on here too and that is that paolo who's the other half of this amorous tryst is also there with francesca and one gets the sense that francesca is happy to talk all day about how it's his fault and love's fault and everyone's fault and he never gets to get a word in mm -hmm. so his story is sort of forever he's forever sort of silenced 
in in this um, union that doesn't seem to be an equal one at all. Francesca sort of voices the whole of the story. We, you know, readers are always sort of interested in his take um, on this story. Um, there's been a lot of really interesting and famous paintings um, of the of this scene, and um, some of them depict it as if Francesca is being tempted or seduced or almost sort of forced. Others show her as the active character who's sort of going after Paolo and sort of dragging him in. Some show a um, a husband coming in and sort of in surprise. Others f- see a kind of dark figure crouching behind the curtains with a kind of evil look on his face, sort of premedi- a kind of premeditated murder, just waiting to catch them in the act. And these all change the way that we think about this scene. Right. Um, Probably, I'll just end with this, but probably the most famous depiction of Paolo and Francesca is um, uh, um, a sculpture by um, Rodin. It's called The Kiss, and mm-hmm. it's um, it, it, it's totally um, extracted from the scenes, the scene here, and it's all about the kind of embrace um, of the two, but it's modeled on on this relationship between Paolo and Francesca. Um, and their their flesh is very um, sensuous and sort of sinuous, but it one um, sort of melts into the other in terms of the forms. And um, there's a there's a really interesting element there too, in which the two become one, but in a kind of um, in a way in which both have kind of um, collapsed into each other, um, not in a way that gives them more life or uniqueness, identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could do a whole episode on Rodin's depictions of <laughs> of all oh, yeah of much part many of the parts of hell yeah, that's yeah. right gates um, of hell and right the kiss and his adam and eve and um, it's really just for readers it's probably worth noting that um the thinker the famous the most famous sculpture that you've certainly seen uh, at least an image of is actually modeled that's supposed to be dante um as he's thinking about um thinking up the divine comedy so right and there's so much that we could, could, could even be said. I mean, we, we don't have to comment on it, but it's interesting to think maybe even Francesca's almost acting out what she's uh, hearing in, in the text, you know, this sort of mm-hmm. imitative type of thing. But um, just one more thing that we should say, and then we can leave, we can, we can journey further in, but um, it's worth remembering, remembering that Dante himself is a poet, the poet he tells us of love and Dante himself um, writes poems that would could potentially excite readers such as Francesca <laughs> into these kinds of acts. And so right. um, in many ways, the Divine Comedy is almost, it's still a love poem, but it's a poem of, if we, if we look at it from this perspective, it's a poem of Dante's own penance and a redirecting of romantic love away from self-absorption and self-defeat and into a higher wider um new life so his relationship with beatrice is supposed to be the kind of inversion or the the opposite of the paolo and francesca relationship as well um right and that's starting here with as we'll see right having less and less sympathy for the damned which as you're saying and i think in the spirit of how we're trying to read it here is not having sympathy with our own sinful tendencies and actions right and right. sort of becoming more uh calloused to that towards which we should be calloused um which is fitting because as we, as we get lower and lower we get a hardening um things get harsher in tone and sound and sight um so is there any any other 
layers that stand out to you in particular um, as deserving? I mean, there's so much that could be done, right? Not- there's so much that could be said. That's right. Um, it, it, I, I think the best thing here would be to have a kind of broad overview of um, the whole, and that is that as Dante goes down deeper and deeper with Virgil, um, we encounter more of we encounter more of the monstrous in terms of figures who, you know, there are the devils that are torturing people. Um, There are, um, there's a whole sort of walled city that's surrounded by um, all these kind of horrible monsters. There are giants. um, There are are grotesque figures. Um, The sinners themselves also suffer um, increasingly sort of grotesque and deforming um, punishments. But as we go as we go down, these um, these themes are meant to shock and horrify us, but not as a kind of um, not in the way you would kind of drive by or watch like a like a scary movie, right? But instead, um, at the heart of every circle and of all of the encounters that they have is a recognition of the kind of abandonment of personality of rightly ordered affect or emotion of um, desire um, on the outer levels. And then as we keep going in to the, to the kind of deeper lower parts of hell, we, there we encounter really individuals who they have a kind of, they often have a sort of um, civic pride or a kind of professional pride. But um, what we see with them is the way in which they intentionally choose the sin that they've um chosen and it um it hardens them they they become um calcified or um they become sort of stuck there there's this language in augustine that sin is a curvatus in say a turning in and towards the self and that's a kind of deformation dante plays with that idea of being deformed as a human being so we're scarcely recognizable anymore as human beings the figures and their suffering are like that but the souls also um they what we see is these figures who make real the worst parts of ourselves the worst tendencies in ourselves and dante gives us in this kind of um increasingly horrifying and kind of honestly as you kind of slog through hell you the the horrors of it the fresh new horrors become less oppressive than this foreboding sense of this is what it's possible for human beings to to do to one another and ultimately to ourselves yeah and and you kind of get past sort of the marveling at the grotesqueries and 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 whatever's the shock value of that right and try to get to that you get to that deeper point and i'm wondering if there's lower those lower levels of hell seem like the the pitfalls of the bureaucrat and the, uh, mm-hmm. the public official and uh-huh. that from all externals uh are respectable and well to do and um you know yeah just as you're saying it's it's interesting to note that a, a life can take uh that direction of choosing a particular maybe method of manipulation or self-seeking or self-preservation, what have you. Um, I'm, I'm always intrigued by the the punishment for the flatterers who, uh, <laughs> you know, are just, they're pitiable in a way. 
because they're just up to their their necks and in, in feces right they did they, they they they're eating shit for eternity and mm-hmm. because that's they, they've spouted that's it what they spewed their, out right, right? <laughs> and uh so it, it's sort of like comical in that way uh-huh. but it's also interesting to think um this comes in you know the hollanders or maybe you know uh commentary that their words were there and uh, Dante depicts this in a way with, um, you know, the, those that were fraudulent, but their words pushed others around for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. And so people are, and so they are in turn being pushed from behind in directions. And so, um, you know, I recently reread uh, Yosef Pieper's Abusive Language, Abusive Power, where he does a lot with flattery. And he, he I mean, he has a really wonderful, not a wonderful, but a perceptive view of it. It's, Flattery is where the purpose of speech has been abandoned, of mm-hmm. the purpose of, of truth telling has been abandoned, of ha- inviting others to share in the world with you and reflecting the world to others. And, and um, of course, lies make things more opaque for others and their understanding of the world. But flattery is where you're, you are telling someone else, um, you know, something they want to hear so that your ends are furthered. Right. It's, it's not a compliment in an authentic way. It's not trying to be, you know, uh, you know, bolster someone's wounded uh, self image or whatever. But it's really just pushing someone ever so gently, perhaps through soft spoken, perhaps uh, flattery. Um, and so you see when that, as you're saying, when that calcifies, when that really shapes a person's character, which should happen. Like, think about it, a person could fall into that rather innocently at first. Right. I'm just mm-hmm. going to, this is a method where I get others to do things for me. This is good leadership. Right. This is good managing. You can see this playing out in the workplace in so many different ways, right? But when it becomes, you know, when it takes on a proportion and, and as you're saying, calcification or um, when it takes, when it gets a hardened edge and, and starts to become uncharitable, then you see how Dante arrives at what he arrives at. Right. It's, it's so interesting. You're, uh, those, a perfect kind of case study in exactly what we've been talking about, the flatterers. And it's just so interesting. Like um, some would think, well, why would anger or heresy be not as bad as flattery? Right. But um, Dante really, in effect, actually violence against others or against the oneself or against God. um, These are again, not as deep as these sins of deception and um, the really interesting thing is, like, violence is harm against the body, but deception is harm against the truth, against the soul, against the spirit. And Dante, you know, we could we could agree or disagree, but he's suggesting to us that 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 um, roots the sin in a kind of deeper place of a of a negation of all that's good. Um, that harming that harming the body is one thing, but this harm to um, this harm to the soul and its relationship to the truth is um, even more profound. Um, that's that, that's a, um, a, a sort of spiritual truth, um, which is not, of course, to belittle the the harm or those who suffer harm from violence, but that this is a different kind of violence, and that it can go undetected. And in fact. In a certain way, physical violence um, is more manifest. And here, what we have is kind of we're we're moving also more and more into the interior of the heart. So that actually, th- this we have these different kinds of deception 
you know, he flatterers are, are kind of towards the outside, but we have, you know, thieves and counterfeiters are pretty low for interesting, uh, he has interesting well. theories, alchemists. That's right. Um, <laughs> but then in the, in the final circle, um, what we get is kind of the worst kind of deception. And that is, um, the kind of deception that actually betrays my relationship, um, to another human being. And so it violates, um, uh, both that original relationship between human beings that God has set up, or as you mentioned, Genesis um, one and two, um, it it violates the truth because of the the nature of um, deception, and also violates the common good, the good that's shared among all. So um, these forms of deception, and and again, they also on the, so the ninth circle of hell is the floor of hell. And for reasons that we're going to discover in the final canto, um, this floor is not really a floor at all. It's a it's a lake, but it's a lake that's been frozen over. And here the souls are frozen into it in various sort of um, depths and and postures. Um, and the as you kind of move on this um, this circle of ice down on this frozen floor towards the center, um, you have people who betrayed their relatives, people who betrayed. Um, their political party or their homeland, people who betrayed guests, which we know from classical literature, right, is one of the worst things that you can do um, since guests stand most in need. And um, the welcoming of guests is um, a sort of universal um, human thing to do. And to violate that relationship is the almost the worst kind of treachery. And then finally, in the very circle, the center of hell is um, those who betray their rightful lords, the people to whom they owe allegiance. And um, ultimately, for human beings, that's the God him, himself that we owe allegiance. So a kind of betrayal of God or of, of Christ here in the center of, of hell forms the frozen heart of the inferno. Which is, which is shocking to people at times, or not, if not shocking, surprising, right? Because the popular imagination has hell as the uh, the fire and brimstone, just the you know being consumed in flame. And um, I, I know people really, I think, appreciate Dante's depiction uh, of sort of the the encasement in ice and cold, and and, and the depiction as we'll look at the depiction of the devil um as being really uh helpful in a way you know not in mm -hmm. sort of a li literalistic fashion but as revealing the spiritual realities at work um and it also highlights you know probably what's most valued by dante and what he's seen most violated in his own life being in his own political um you know wranglings and and fallouts and you know the the, the betrayal of community the betrayal of of neighbor and um so it's not just about the self, it's about, you know, rightly ordered relationship. And we see that uh, really put in vivid form in that, in that last canto. That's right. And so, so we come, we'll, we'll we fast forward through hell and we come to canto 34. Um, there's so much to be said, but let's just start with that number. The divine comedy is made up of a hundred cantos. Um, the purgatorio and the paradiso, purgatory and paradise, they each are made up of 33 cantos. Um, right, three is the number of the Trinity. Um, three times three is nine. That's um, um, a trinity of trinities. And also nine was a very important number to Dante because he associated it with Beatrice. Um, she was nine when he first saw her and nine again when she, he saw her again and started his new life. Um, but the Inferno is um, 
34. It's just a little, it's, it's misshapen. It throws off the perfection of the whole, right? There's a sort of extra canto tacked onto the end to bring us to 100. And here in the 34th canto, what we have um, is an encounter with um, Satan at the very heart um, of things. So, how, Matt, how did you find, what was your reaction to, to the Satan that we encounter here? It's, it's striking. It's memorable. Um, it seems fitting because it's, and this is the danger, right? You, he's pitiable, but you can't pity him, obviously. But it's, mm-hmm. it's. It, I mean, even if you get to the very end and you hear, um, you hear of him. He's well, he's three headed. Number one in mockery mm-hmm. of the Trinity, which is fitting, and you, and you see these parallels and uh, as an inversion, right of of who God is, but in such an impoverished and pity, an impotent form, right? Mm-hmm. No matter the, the attempts of pride of the devil, his, his mockery is still, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, impotent, right? It's, right. it's, it's just stagnant literally in, in this envisioning. Right. And I, w- I was struck this last time reading around this, the, the weeping, right. Mm-hmm. And sort of the, the blood stained drool, that comes out of his mouth as he gnaws right. on Brutus, Cassius, and Judas. Um, right. But I and recently, obviously, in our part of the world right now, we're covered in ice and cold uh-huh. winds. I was out <laughs> walking last night, and I'm like, you know, I was just reading about Dante trying to get behind Virgil to shield himself because the devil has these wings that are just, you know, making it colder and colder with the with the frigid breeze, and um, you know, it's just. It's memorable, and it's it's um, very memorable. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'll say that much at this point. One one thinks, yeah, just the first time reading this, or the first people to encounter this, um, he does this amazing thing, right? Where so so Satan is enormous, um, and he's here at the very center of the earth, and he's he he is he's encircled by this lake of ice so that his upper, the upper part of him is above the ice, but the lower part of him is below it. And, and in the center of the earth, he's exactly in the middle and he's flapping his wings, right? These powerful, he's got six wings, two for each head. Um, in this kind of parody of the, um, seraphim who are supposed to have six wings, right? The angels of heaven, the highest order of angels. And here he is with all of his power and might, and he's flapping his wings, but here's the, here's the, sort of dark humor here that the wings as he flaps them powerfully are the things that are creating the ice that's sticking him where he is mm. so at the very heart of hell what we have is self-assertion brought to radical impotence mm-hmm. um the rejection of god and the assistance on himself right seen in its fullest so to speak, dark splendor right here, which is not spl- splendiferous at all. It's the opposite. It's this image where he he remains. There's this famous image where he's his his brow is raised in scorn of his creator, um, and yet at the same in this the very next line says, and so he's fit to be the source of every sorrow, mm-hmm. right? And so here the image that we get of Satan is is so different from the image that in our popular imagination or the image that we get. From, let's say the, the the other most famous image comes from Milton's Paradise Lost, where Satan is a kind of romantic hero, right, or a kind of anti-hero who's um, brave and who um, um, says it's better to reign in in hell than to serve in heaven. Um, here we have an image of 
what Dante thinks Satan really is like. Enormous, powerful, to- but um, in terms of physical might and ability, but because he turned into himself, he's totally impotent, um, incapable actually of movement. And so the, the suggestion is our, our sin functions in exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. The kind of rotten heart of it is not freedom and power and the ability to get what we want, but a kind of self-willed um, impotence, right? Um, self-denial, as it turns out. Encasement, and yeah, right, mm-hmm. as you were saying. And it's interesting that, you know, he's introduced as the king of hell or the emperor of hell. So this is what your lordship looks like, right? If you right. want to, to <laughs> erect your own kingdom, this is what it's going to look like. Right. Um, it's interesting, though, the effect that it has upon Dante is visceral, right? Um, Virgil says, uh, echo dite, uh, which is, you know, sort of this parody of, you know, behold the man. But uh, Dante says, then how faint and frozen I became, right? I did not mm-hmm. die, nor did I stay alive. So, in effect, he, he it has effect upon Dante uh, to the to in, in a similar way as it has upon the whole region, right? It's right. It, you're you're frozen. You're 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 just put on your heels in a way. Um, but you know, I I do find it interesting that like considering all the detail and and there's a lot of detail here and and just the physical description of everything, but. And even, you know, the the sort of anatomy of the devil and all that. But you don't, it's almost like I, I, I thought at the end of this that he doesn't seem to spend that much time on the devil. Right. It's almost like, right. uh, and he says it at, at, towards the end, right? He's like, um, all right, now it's time to leave. We've seen it all. <laughs> right. You know what it looks like now. Let's start climbing this hairy beast and get yeah. out of the pit. Right. Uh, which is striking. Like, all right, this is what it is. Let's go. Right. No, it's exactly right. And um, I was struck this time there's a – in the commentary that Hollander offers, there's this great line about that, right? Okay, we came to do what it is that we're supposed to do. The point isn't to dwell here with the evil. It was, uh, it was to see it. It was a go. You've seen the frozen heart of hell. Okay, now, like, what's our task? Our task all along, it was certainly to descend, but we descended in order to ascend. Mm-hmm. So – there's no there's no time to waste, right? The whole point of this descent was to be able to ascend. And and maybe actually this language of going up and down, mm-hmm. we, we should say for a moment, just just briefly, where we've been and where we're going, right? So the what we learn in this final canto is um in, in it's just a, just a few lines. Virgil tells us this the beginning of time, this cosmic history in which the first event in time was Satan's creation as lucifer as the highest um being second only to god who chose himself rather than god and as a result was um in that moment became this abhorrent and hideous inversion of the god whom he was created to love and who he would have been happy and loving and serving and so what's the result he crashes down into earth now we mentioned this last time in um the first episode but you have to imagine the cosmology is one that's centered on the earth, okay? So the center of the universe is the earth for Dante. And outside the earth, there are these planets that circle it. So you have um, wait, the moon, and then um, you have, um, what's the next planet? Mars, um, right? You have these planets that are circling um, as you as you move through the sky. And then on the furthest edge, furthest away from the very center of the earth is what Dante calls the Imperium or where it is that God lives. Okay. This is a, he, he knows that this is a kind of, um, it's a figurative imagining, but it's it's an imagining of the kind of geography of the cosmos which means that the very center of the earth is the place that's furthest away from God, 
So when Satan falls and crashes down into the earth, the very the very center of the earth is the place that's furthest from God, and therefore Christ's descent into hell is a descent fully into that kind of emptiness, um, that lack of hope, right, of being um, abandoned by or or taking or entering into the hearts of those who feel abandoned by God. Okay, so. In the in the geography of the place, the the mythical story is Satan crashes down into the center of the earth, and two things happen: all of the land that was on the southern side of the hemisphere of the planet, um, um, on the far side where he crashes down, it f- it goes underwater and it flees up to the northern side. So Dante's imagination for the earth, right, is that the northern hemisphere is covered by land, but the southern hemisphere is all water. Okay, and then Dante entered, um, of course, on the from the northern hemisphere. He climbs down. It takes him twenty four hours. So he enters on Good Friday. It's now the um, evening of um, um, Holy Saturday, and he's now at the very center of the earth. It turns out that um, this land that fled away from um, um, uh, um, Satan. On the surface of the earth, it all went away. But what, what about all this? You've got these giant caverns in the middle of the earth. What happened to all of that that Satan's now occupying, this great pit? Well, it, it we find out, fled to the other side of the earth and, and built up into this great mountain that Dante and Virgil are going to now have to climb down. Although now, because the center of gravity has shifted um, and the world is turned 180 degrees, they now will start climbing up and out of hell, but from the southern side. And what they emerge to is um, to this mountain, this mass of land that rose up and in kind of fleeing from Lucifer that becomes Mount Purgatory, a place that exists um, in this world um, but re- and reaching up towards the heavens and yet where no human being has been yet. So he's got this, this incredible kind of um, – imagination for the you know the the way the geography all holds together um in this place and how it's linked to this kind of primal fall of the angel who turned who's now satan and so we 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 find virgil and dante then at the end of the inferno um there's this there's this amazing moment where Virgil says, um, here, Dante, climb on my back, which is one of these beautiful – they've journeyed all the way down through hell. And, and Virgil says, okay, climb on my back. And Virgil starts climbing down the legs of um, uh, Satan. And and right when he gets to the midpoint of Satan's body, um, he like sort of sh- – turns himself around. He's holding on. By the way, Satan has these really hairy legs, which is um, <laughs> super interesting. So that's convenient for climbing. So he turns around and now he's climbing um, upwards instead of downwards. And Dante's confused and the reader might be confused. But then we come to find out as Virgil is explaining to him in their 24-hour trek up to the other side um, or to the southern um, hemisphere that, in fact, they've passed the halfway point. And now, from now on, in the rest of the poem – um, they will spend their time climbing rather than descending, going up instead of going down. Right, and the, as they emerge uh, from this sort of this chamber, right, then they get a vision of the stars, which will be a theme we can return to as we move through the the next, uh, you know, the next installments of the Purgatorio and the Paradiso. That's right, and Dante does this beautiful little thing um, at the end of the Inferno, after all this darkness and horror. Um, we, we, maybe we can read the last two stanzas because mm-hmm. um, the we have to remember that this is um, uh, called the commedia, the comedy, the um, the happy story, the right. the story of of triumph. And even the inferno ends 
on this note of triumph, he began lost in the woods, not knowing which way to go. And to be sure, the whole of the Inferno was a descent, but that descent was all to serve the purpose of um, being ready to make the ascent. And the Inferno ends on this note of hope. He He had to abandon all hope in entering down into hell, but now he's made it out and hope returns. And so the final two stanzas um, read, um, Into the hidden passage my guide and I entered to find again the world of light. And without thinking of a moment's rest, we climbed up, he first and I behind him, far enough to see through a round opening a few of those fair things the heavens bear. Then we came forth to see again the stars. Thanks for joining us for this third installment of our Lenten Dante series as we close out our time in his Inferno. Uh, we, we face the reality of sin uh, head on. Uh, we've skated along the ice uh, of the pit of hell, and now we are prepared to ascend Mount Purgatory, which will be arduous but hopeful. Um, in between, you know, now and the next episode, though, when we when we start to uh, climb our way up. Mount Purgatory. Uh, if you could help the show along, it'd be great if you could um, review the show uh, wherever you get your podcast, whether it's uh, through Apple or Stitcher or Spotify. Even if you just click uh, a, a certain number of stars, hopefully the maximum number of stars, which is very fitting given our our Dantean theme of, of the stars at the end of the Inferno, and, and we'll see how that uh, gets pulled through the remainder of the narrative. Uh, and if you could just, you know, in a very personal way, recommend the show to someone else or any number of other people that you think might benefit from uh, not only this this journey through Dante's imaginative world, but also just anyone you think would uh, would enjoy the show in general. And uh, also take a moment right now to uh, again mention uh, Paul Camacho's weekly newsletter. Of course, Paul is joining me on this journey. Uh, this nine-part series through the Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. And uh, I do want to plug once again his weekly, uh, or as he describes it, his weekly-ish newsletter titled, Will This Be on the Exam? Uh, Subtitled, Newsletter for Those Who Wonder. So if you're listening to this podcast, then this newsletter uh, is exactly for you. Um, He further describes it on on the website uh, as as a newsletter, about philosophy, literature, and culture, minus the stuffy academic prose. And so I highly recommend it. I look forward to it uh, appearing in my inbox uh, every Monday. So there's a link to Paul's uh, newsletter in in the show notes. So you can just open that up, drop your email in in the box there, hit enter, and just uh, await uh, uh, the goodness that's going to come into your, your inbox. So I highly recommend that again. Uh, and, and definitely encourage you to, to check it out. All right. So the next time, again, uh, put on your, your, your climbing shoes with, with Dante and Virgil as we're going to uh, begin our time in Mount Purgatory, which will involve uh, an arduous ascent that will though, nonetheless get uh, easier as we, as we go along and all the more joyous. Until then, though, let's continue journeying further up and further in. Mm-hmm.